In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. About to jump ahead to page 8. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Page 12. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me. For He was before Me. And of His fullness... We have all received in grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You may be seated. Let me remind you of the purpose statement of John. It's John 20, verses 30-31. It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. We have been talking about the first chapter of John and how it refers to the Logos. In the beginning was the Word or the Logos. And we've been working through the meaning of that term and working through the way in which these first 18 verses in a dense way, give us lots of information about Christ as the God-man, as the Logos. And so we've been trying to deal with different definitions of the Logos because what happens in the book of John is this effort to take different meanings of the word and to show us the unity of those things and how they all find their unity in Christ. And so Christ is the Logos in all of the senses that we see here. We deal with Christ as the Logos in all of the ways that we see laid out. So there are seven senses. And so the emphasis of the book of John is on the fact that Christ as the Logos is the divine Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. We are also reminded of the fact that He is the creator and governor of all things. And so we think about Him as the decree. We talk about the Logos as the decree so that it is the choices of God that is the Logos. And the Logos, the Word, the Fiat, the the Word of God is that by which the world is made and by which the world is upheld. We have the reality that Christ lights the minds of all men. And so He is the image of God. right? That's explicitly laid out in passages of Scripture. And we are the image of God. And we are being renewed after Christ as the image of God if we are believers. And He lights the minds of every person, even the reprobate. There is the content that has been corrupted, there is purpose that is misdirected, there is choice that is improperly made, all rooted in the rationality of man as a reasonable creature. And Christ is reason. He is the Logos. Reason is the way God thinks. Christ is given to us in verbal revelation, in the oracles of God. And so we are reminded that 
the words that are given through prophets are themselves the delivery of Christ. Words transfer Christ into our soul, but only when there is an effectual working of the Holy Spirit to illuminate us. And so the work of Christ to enlighten us by His Spirit and to cause Himself to dwell in us. Christ came incarnate so that He is not only God, and not only God with some angelic soul, but rather He is God with a reasonable soul that is created and a created body. So that He might be our mediator and representative and die as a substitute, being the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. And furthermore, the church is the body of Christ, is in union with Christ. And there is a maturing of the church that occurs as Christ leads His church into all truth. And so, the objective word which teaches us about God and about the works of God and about the incarnate God is brought to us so that by illumination individuals can be matured and transformed so that as a body we might be matured and transformed so that the church might covenant to new high watermarks and make confession of the faith in more and more full ways that the rule of the kingdom of Christ might be manifest more and more that it might fill the earth and that he might fill it so that he will be all in all And so we have all of that. And we come to the in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so He is the eternal Son. Now, we are reminded there that that means He's not created. So Arianism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, they are all wrong. We are reminded that Christ is with the Father. He is not alone, and the Father is not alone. And so we are not modalists. We do not believe that the Trinity is simply God acting in different ways at different times. There are three persons, three minds, three spirits that are eternal God. And Christ is the maker of all things. And there are no things that are made that were not made by Him. Verse 4. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. I have titled this sermon, Light and Life. And that is because we will be talking about the meaning of those terms, the way in which the Logos is light and is life more. We'll be talking about the objective light of the Word coming, and the possession of that light being a saving faith, which is life and the giving of life being by the work of the Spirit. So there's a a special relationship to the word light, to the external word. And there's a special relationship of the word life to the internal work of the Holy Spirit. There are ways to connect both words to both, but there's a special emphasis there. Light especially relates to this idea of the external word and Life relates especially to the possession of that light in such a way that it's believed. And so, when we have life by the working of the Spirit, the resurrection that occurs, you can see that. And and saying that right there, that little word resurrection, you are beginning to load in your mind verses about regeneration, about the resurrection of the soul, and you are already beginning to think about the ways in which life relates to faith in ways that is all over the Scriptures. So in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let's look at a few verses in John that help us to see these words emphasized. John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I am the light of the world. So, we've looked at the senses in which the Logos is dealt with. And we can talk about light in a number of ways, but the point here is that any light that there's going to be is Christ. Any light that there's going to be. This is a dark place, and the light in the dark place is Christ. And by delivering Himself 
as the light. He is the only light that can be possessed by the world. And if somebody follows the light, they follow Christ, then they won't walk in darkness. Think about how that's a tautology for a second. If you follow light, then you're not walking in darkness. That's on purpose. That obviously true statement is on purpose. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you, even though you've read that verse before, you never thought about it in that way before. And so, if you're thinking about the idea of, okay, so there's a light, and light differentiates things. Light makes it so the darkness, which blocks the differentiation of things, goes away. Light dispels darkness. If you follow light, then you're walking in light, not in darkness. And so if you have the light of life, that is following the light. The light of life, if you are looking at the light, following the light, seeing the light, dead men don't see light. You can shine a light in dead men's eyes all you want, and they won't blink. There is an inability for a dead man to see light. The seeing of the light is an indicator of life. And if you walk after that light, that is the light of life. You have the light of life. So there's a unifying principle about the idea of what life is. Spiritual life is having light, it's having truth, it's seeing the truth, it's recognizing the truth is worth following, it's recognizing the truth is valuable, it's recognizing the truth as truth and not error. So that's laid out there. John 12, 35-36. Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Jesus is talking about himself as the light, and he's going to go, he's going to die, he's going to then be resurrected, he's going to then ascend, go away. And so we're taught elsewhere, he won't leave us orphans. But here we're seeing the emphasis on the idea that the light is going to leave. He is the light, he's going to leave. So while the light is with the disciples, they should walk while they have the light, lest darkness overtake them. So until Christ died and was resurrected and ascended, there's a very localization, there's a very localized way in which the light manifests itself in the earth. Christ in the incarnate form, he, he, he is drawing people to himself. Now think about how he draws people to himself after he ascends. There is a far less localized way in which he's drawing people to himself when he ascends. And so here he is gathering together a cluster, a small cluster of persons. And then after his death and resurrection and ascension, he's going to cause the light to go spill out broadly across the earth. John 17.3, and this is eternal life. Here's that word life. That, you may know, that, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowledge, as opposed to the term light, is used here, right? But this is, you can, we've already seen so much the idea of the light being the thing to be believed. And so the light is the life. And the life is the possession of that light, the belief of that light. So light has to do with truth, thought, and wisdom. It is propositional. It includes logic itself. It is not limited to logic. It includes logic. And so we have God is the light. The image of God is light. Oracles and ordinances of God are light. The Holy Spirit's work to illuminate is light. And life is used to talk of wisdom, belief in wisdom, and the way one walks. And so life is the gospel. It's the knowledge of Christ. It's Christ himself and the fruit of faith. Life is the saving propositional thought. 
When you think Christ, rightly defined, you don't just think something like Christ. You're not just thinking, okay, when I think about Christ, I'm thinking about something, but it's not the same as the reality. No. This is sometimes used in very pietistic-sounding ways, very holy-sounding ways, where you think, whatever you think, it's not high enough, it's not good enough, you're never going to reach God. That's blasphemy, because the knowledge of God is saving faith. The knowledge of God is life. If you don't think God, then you're not saved. You can find many introductions to systematic theologies, many books that try to talk about the knowledge of God that then go on to talk about how you can't really know God. J.I. Packer's Knowing God should be called Inability to Know God. If you read it, you'll find him talk about the way in which you can't really think God. If you start out with Herman Bovink's three-volume systematic theology, he spends about 20 pages talking about how you can't really know God, and then he goes on trying to talk to you about what you should know about God. Three volumes. Three volumes. One wonders what he had to talk about when you consider the introduction. The knowledge of God is not the knowledge of something like God. The knowledge of God is the knowledge of God. When we receive the word, when the light comes to us, and we are enlightened, we possess life. We possess light. We possess God. We have God in our souls. He actually indwells us. It's not something like him that indwells us. We actually have him. And so, the relationship of truth and reality is very important. There's a unity between the thing that you're thinking when you're believing the truth and between Christ himself. This doctrine is called realism. And it is the doctrine that truth is reality. Truth is reality. What is real is true, and what is true is real. And when you believe the truth, you possess reality in your mind. Now, it is very common in our time, and has been for some time, to assert that truth is different from reality. One of the ways to try to say this while still trying to keep some sort of an ability to know truth is called conceptualism. And conceptualism is the idea that truth relates to reality but isn't reality itself. It, 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 it accords with reality but is not reality itself. Now, if truth only accords with reality, then God is not truth. But the word says that God is truth. If truth only accords with reality, then when you know Christ, you're really only knowing truth about Christ, and you're not knowing Christ. And if you don't really know Christ, then here's the problem we have. When we look at truth, how do we compare it to Christ to see if it actually matches up? If you can't think Christ, how are you ever going to compare truth and Christ and see if they line up? If you're going to compare them, don't you have to have both in your minds? And if truth is in your mind but reality is not, then how do you compare them? And so what sounds like a solution to make it so that you can have a difference between these things and to try to have some sort of a knowledge of things that aren't thought. What sounds like a solution there turns into something where you can't really tell the relationship between truth and reality. So why would anybody take this position? Here's why they take this position. Because truth is thought in words, truth takes on propositional form. You think about subjects and predicates. God is love. God is eternal, right? They fit very nicely into thought. They are structured like thought. Those sentences can run through your mind, and they have no feet. But when you start to try to look around at things 
and get images or feelings or experiences into your mind as knowledge, you have a hard time thinking, okay, if that table right there is a real table, then how am I going to cram that thing into my head? I mean, maybe if I push in my ear real hard. But I'd be worried about something coming out the other ear. And so if you try to jam physical things into your ear, it typically doesn't go well for your health, and it increases your medical bills. So if I'm going to get things that I'm looking at into my mind, that creates a real problem. And so I start to think, well, maybe knowledge isn't the thing. Maybe knowledge isn't reality. Maybe as opposed to thinking reality, I'm just thinking truth, and truth relates to reality. And that way I can get knowledge from stuff around me that's physical. Okay, that's the, that's the craving. That's the desire. The desire is to make experience a source of knowledge and to have experience relate to something real in the physical world. That's the reason for wanting to make truth accord with reality as opposed to being reality. But let me tell you what. That table, what if I told you that table is at its core thoughts? What if I told you that God's decree, which is thoughts, which is him thinking things, choosing things? What if I told you that he upholds all things by the word of his power? What if I told you that the, the nature of reality is thought? What if I told you that truth and reality have a unity? God is real, and God is a spirit. God's a mind. He's a thinker. And he reveals himself in words. He didn't give us a picture book. And at the same time, when he creates, he creates by his word, by fiat, by decree. His very word upholds things. The being of a thing is words. Hey, think about this for a second. If you ask what is, and then fill in the blank. If I say what is a chair, you are either going to think words or you're going to think gobbledygook. When I ask you what is a human, you're going to answer me with words. When I ask you what a table is, you're going to answer me with words. You either have a discernible intellectual thought content whereby you know the difference between one thing and another or you have no idea what you're talking about. The nature of things, the being of things, the definition of things is ultimately thought content. And God, by his very thoughts, makes things and upholds them and controls what they do. He thinks a thing and it happens. He thinks a thing and it's made. The very nature of reality is thought. He spoke and things were caused to exist. Now, a thing that somebody might run to once they realize that really, when you look around, you're not able to get the reality in your mind, and you can't really tell the relationship of your thoughts to the thing, is they might retreat to what's called nominalism, which is the doctrine that you cannot tell the difference, you cannot tell the relationship between truth and reality. There's not a discernible relationship. So if there's not a discernible relationship, that typically makes it so that you kind of give up on figuring out the relationship. So what's, the, what's, what's, what's reality? Reality is God. And reality is what God has made. And reality is what God has determined will happen. That's it. That's the wholeness of reality. The wholeness of reality is God and what God has made and what God has determined will happen. If that's the wholeness of reality, what we have is God and his decrees. We have God and his decrees. And his decrees are his choice. So in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He causes us, as the image of God, to have certain truths in us and to think in such a way as to be able to think truth, to think reason, and to be able to think about reality. And he gives us a word 
the scriptures that teach us the truth. They teach us about reality. And he causes those who believe to believe more. You only believe because he caused you to believe, and you believe more because he causes you to believe more. And so you begin to know reality. You begin to know what is real. Now verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There are ways in which he causes the light to shine objectively. He causes the light to be turned on, but he makes blind, dead men not see it. He takes the flashlight, and he puts it into the eyes of dead men. And he does that for the purpose of showing they're dead. He does it for the purpose of showing that they're dead. Sometimes he resurrects those dead men and then makes them see it. And boy, do they jump. And other times, he just shines in their eyes and lets other men who were once dead and now alive see that those dead men don't see. It's a show. To show his glory. So, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And man is the darkness. And so we think about man as darkness, and we think, well, if man is light, if man is, is the image of God, and the image of God is light, how does that work? And so the light itself that we have is suppressed, right? There's a suppressing of that light as we seek to avoid responsibility for sin. And that funny thing is that sin itself that we have is the is the sin of not believing. So not believing, we seek to avoid believing that we are responsible for not believing. It's great activity of time-wasting. It currently fills the earth. It used to fill the earth more. And the process of the advance of the knowledge of God is the process of removing that time-wasting activity and replacing it with more useful things, like not suppressing the light, but instead increasing the light. Adding things like light enhancers and backers to make the light go more directionally, in a useful way. The process of removing that useless activity and replacing it with useful activity of believing the truth. That's the advance of the kingdom. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So we have John being used as an example of prophets. So we, as people who are given the light that lights every man, we can either be those who suppress the light or we can be those who seek to spread the light. Christians are made into witnesses of the light. And when we give witness, what we are doing is we are shining light. We are increasing light. We're magnifying light. We're spreading light. We're seeking to shine the light into the darkness more. And there was a dispelling that occurs. But John was a lone voice in the wilderness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. That bearing witness to light, you are called to do that. You are prophets. It is your job to bear witness of the light. And that is an act of shining light and increasing light. And you know, one of the effects is that it increases the light in you. It increases your knowledge. As you speak the truth, it causes you more and more to think the truth. And it increases your possession of that light. Verse 8, He was not that light, but He was sent to bear witness of that light. So we have the opportunity to, to bear witness, to shine light for the light. Verse 9, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So what's being talked about is Christ, is the light. And He gives light to every man coming into the world. And so we've talked about that as the image of God. And I need to remind you of this. If you look at page 6, the light that lights the minds of all men also talked about as the light of nature. It is the image of God. And I need that to be abundantly clear to you that that is not it is not 
experience. It's not looking around. It's not empirical data. It's not science. The light of nature is the image of God. It is the light that is given to every man, including those who are deaf and blind. Now, Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23 says, The lamp of the body is the eye. What does a lamp do? lamp shines light. This verse, Augustine spent a lot of time on the Matthew text. He, he talked about the idea that you know, rather than thinking of experience as receiving a bunch of light that's coming in, we should rather think about our minds as lights. And when we give attention to a thing, when we think about the thing, it is as though we are shining light on the world. As you give attention to a thing, think about how much you walk around seeing stuff and not remembering it or thinking about it at all. And when you know a lot about a subject, it's difficult to be around it without seeing it. And so the way you label things, the way you think about them and differentiate and notice goes up, right? If you study botany and go into a garden, it's a very different experience from not studying botany and going into a garden. If you know about cars and you have mechanical skill, it's a very different experience to open up the hood of a vehicle than if you are me and open up the hood of a vehicle. And so that process of opening up the hood of the vehicle can have two very different experiences. One person is sort of like Terminator, just going, all these things get labeled. There's John Connor. And then other people just go, what's that? It looks like abstract art. The difference between the two experiences is enormous. And it's because you have labels and categories and what you see is controlled by what you see. And what you see inwardly controls what you think you're seeing externally. Your experiences are very different. You interpret the experiences and therefore have a very different experience. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. So the eye here is not the physical eye. It's just I'm talking about your optometrist says you have 20-20 vision, and therefore your whole body will be full of light. And the idea here is, if your focus is good, if your presuppositions are good, so that you interpret the world rightly, then your whole body will be full of light, which means you will do things that are good. Right? Your body will be filled with light. Your body will be governed by truth. You will do things. You'll have a spiritual rather than fleshly body in the sense of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Right? You'll do dark things. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Right? If the way you think is dark, how great is that darkness? You can't do anything good. This is the eye of the mind. A man's mind, his focus and discernment, his presuppositions by which he interprets his experience. This is the lamp of the body. The eye. So it is not the eye, physical, it is the eye of the mind. The light of nature is the thinker. And thinking about creation and providence is not looking at creatures and events. So I talked about that last time, I've laid it out. I tried to order it a little bit more um, in a way that I thought might be helpful for processing. And so I've reminded you here the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing it's not the creatures it's not particular items the work of providence is God's governing it's not particular events you can't see his governing and you can't see his making of nothing not with the eye perhaps with the eye of the mind you can understand it so page 7 summary of all that is that the light of nature is the image of God and the image of God is general revelation. General revelation is not empirical study. General revelation is the laws of logic and innate propositions. Westminster Confession talks about this again. It talks about the light of nature shows that there is a God. Now, Westminster Confession chapter 4 talks about the definition of the image of God. It says, After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, 
having the law of God written in their hearts. Now, knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, we can affirm from other places of Scripture that we're being renewed after the image of Christ in those things. Those are the image of Christ. And it's plain from other Scriptures that reason is the image of Christ. That Christ is the Logos. That we are not like unreasoning beasts. The difference between man and beast is the lack of reason. It's the thing that gets emphasized. When Nebuchadnezzar goes mad and starts to eat in the field, the way he's referred to is unreasoning. And when we talk about heretics and their abandonment of the truth, they are called unreasoning. These are the types of words that get used in Scripture over and over again. And so the ability to think, to be reasonable, to have thought content, purpose, and to make choices, when those things are rightly formed, they are knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. And we've talked about Romans 1, verses 18 to 21. And I want to emphasize for you verse 20, at the bottom of page 7. It says, For since the creation of the world, and this is from the beginning of the timeline, God's invisible attributes, invisible means you can't see it, right? Are clearly seen. What? Right, the seeing is the seeing with the mind. Being understood by the things that are made. Now the things that are made, that's one word. Look at the footnote. It is poemasai. And that term is used one other place in Ephesians 2.10 and it's talking about man as God's workmanship. Specifically redeemed man. Being recreated as God's workmanship. So, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the creatures, by man. Because although they, man, knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened. Right, this light is darkened. Page 8. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Okay, so he's in the world. How? In all the ways we just talked about. This is a recapturing line. This is pulling things together. This is a head of doctrine capturing the stuff that was just said. He's in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He's in the world. He made the world. The world doesn't know him. How is he in the world? In all of the ways that we talk about the Logos. He's everywhere present as God. He decrees everything, and so he's upholding things. He's, he's made everything. He's, he's controlling what's going on. He's in us as the light that lights the minds of everybody. His word is going forth. Believers have him and are being caused to see him. The incarnation was in the world. Believers attest to the Incarnation and they attest to the oracles and they point to God. So they're filling the world with more by professing. And the church is more and more professing and maturing and filling the earth and still the world did not back then and does not now know Him. God intentionally did not illuminate the world salvifically. He caused the world to decline into more and more darkness from Adam to Noah. And those first eight chapters of Genesis are a grim story of candle after candle being blown out. When you see all the list of men who lived 900 years, 800 years, 700 years, those are great libraries being destroyed. Souls with a millennium of knowledge, believing men being extinguished from the earth, and many of their descendants giving over all of their goods and wealth to unbelieving children because they married unbelieving women. The story getting to Noah is the process of wicked men building empires and killing the righteous and taking their stuff. It's a story of the earth being filled with blood not the knowledge of God, but with blood. Filled with violence. And so the Lord washes it away and He baptizes the world in a flood. Okay. 
Noah is another Adam. He's given the dominion mandate again. And this time he's given the sword. He's going to do it. He's going to do the thing. He's going to kill the bad guys. We're not going to do it again. And so we go forward. We get about 500 years in. You go, how is this working out? And you find Abraham and he's in an idolatrous household in a dark land. And there are very, very few kings who are godly kings. So these kings didn't seem to do the trick. And so the world just goes into darkness and Abraham gets taken out and he's given light and he's given circumcision to separate the world from the church to give a visible sign. And in that distinguishing out, what you have from Abraham onward, you get to Moses and about 500 years later, the people that were chosen to be separated out of the darkness are enslaved and they're cowards and their children are being murdered and they are not rising up in resistance. And so what's happening is there is darkness and Moses is sent and he brings a light and he pulls them out and then they get out and they go into the desert and they have a tabernacle filled with light and they fill the land and they go in and 500 years later, The land is filled with darkness. And there's idolatry. And so God brings a king, David. And David comes, and he takes the throne, and he has glorious power, and he unifies the kingdom, and he's anointed with power, and he stands on the roof, and he sees a woman, and he steals her from his husband, from her husband, and murders the husband. In two generations, the kingdom is torn in two. And it's filled with darkness. And a thousand years later, Christ came into the world. This is this constant downward collapse with this pull it back up, put it together, falls apart again. That's the history of the world from creation to Christ. You have 4,000 years of that. Those are the major story points. Now, from Christ until now, there has been a rise. And you look around, you don't feel like it, but there has been. There are millions, tens of millions of Christians in the earth. There are Bibles, more Bibles than we know what to do with. I've got so many Bibles, unreasonable amount of Bibles. I can't even give them away fast enough. People don't want them. There's too many. There's too many Bibles. I have too many Bibles. This is the problem we have. We go from 15 whatever, nobody's allowed to have a Bible, you get killed if you have it, to I have too many Bibles. You have too many Bibles. You have Bibles, you go, this one's not good enough. I'm not going to read this Bible. This Bible is not worth me reading. I'm going to get my other Bibles and read those. This is where we are. This is what we've got. You go, I don't want to read my Bible anymore. I'm going to pick up my device in my pocket that teleports the Bible into my eyes, wherever I am. I'm going to search for words because reading it's hard. I'd like the computer to tell me where the word is I'm looking for. This is where we are. This is what we have. And you don't think things are getting better? Are you Abraham? Do you live, is, that, is that the world you live in? You pull out of an idolatrous home and you're the only guy rolling around and you run into Melchizedek and you go, oh, look, another believer. We have a very different world. God will save the world from the unbelieving world of darkness. It's a very dark world, and it's being filled with light. By filling the earth with the knowledge of himself as the waters cover the sea, he will overcome the darkness. By filling the earth with the church, he overcomes the darkness. By filling the church with the deep knowledge of himself, he overcomes the darkness. By destroying the unbelieving world in providential judgments, by degrees, one at a time, the preaching of the word being used to bring those judgments... He's going to remove the darkness by displacing and replacing the unbelieving world in mercy with believing persons and the church by having Christians be born into believing homes that they might be given life of due time so that there are elect persons who are given faith by the power of the Holy Spirit being raised in the fear and admission of the Lord. The city of God is built. The preaching of the word is used to bring conversions of those who were in non-covenant homes and by those who are in covenant homes. Verse 10, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. There was a covenant people, 
in the world, Israel, the Jews, and they rejected Christ. And that was used in order to bring about the bringing in of the nations, that the nations might become covenant nations too. And so that then Israel would return as a covenant nation. Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now this word receive, it takes reformed people to take the word receive and make it mean something different from the word believe. Like It requires like a lot of study to figure out how to make receiving and believing different. But people have done it. You will run into people and they will say this. They will say, you can believe the doctrine and not receive Christ. It's funny. It's funny. Because I think John said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Comma, explanatory interrupter, to those who believe in his name. Those seem to be the same category of person. One seems to be explaining the other. This interrupter clause seems to be saying these two groups of people are the same groups of people. They're doing the same thing. Receiving and believing is the same thing. Okay? Now, if that's the case, that they're the same thing, then one of the things that you will find is in the Westminster Confession, which talks about the idea of justifying faith, and I want you to jump to... Page 11, question 72 there. It's overly ambitious in what I would get through. Question 72, what is justifying faith? Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. Whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery... Convincing, is that an intellectual activity to convince somebody of something? Like, do they understand something they didn't understand before and now they think something else is true? Is that what happens when you convince somebody of something? Okay. And of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition. That seems like additional stuff, information to be convinced of. Convinced of one thing and convinced of another thing. These are the thought content material of which faith is made up. Not only assenting to the truth of the promise of the gospel, right? What's assenting? Is assenting an intellectual activity where you like think something's true? Not only assenting to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness. So receiving Christ. If Christ is the truth and you receive him, and we just saw that receiving is believing. So when you receive Christ, are you just believing truths about Christ, who He is? You receive Christ. And when you rest upon Christ, we all know that this obviously means you need to physically lie on top of Him. Right? I mean, who's with me? Let's do the thing, everybody. What is it talking about? It is talking about thinking there's nothing else you have to do. It's not saying make sure to feel relaxed enough. Woosah. Right? Like, this is not some sort of breathing exercise. Right? The resting upon Christ is not a feeling. The resting upon Christ is thinking, you know, I thought I had to do works to be saved, and I thought I was going to hell because of my works. But I now realize Christ did all the work, and I don't have to do anything. That's rest. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else that I have to do. That is the thought content called resting. It is the acknowledgement of the fact that Christ did it all. We receive and rest upon Christ and His righteousness. Right, his righteousness. We have to understand the doctrine of imputed righteousness. We have to understand that Christ paid for our sins and He gave us righteousness as a covering. That's the thought content that has to be believed. Now, notice the little interrupter phrase, therein held forth. Wherein held forth? What are we talking about? Christ, where is he? Like, talking about a physical location? There's a room where he's sitting? Like, look through a window, you have a video connection, you see Christ? No. You receive Christ held forth in the promise of the gospel. Promises. Are promises words? 
gospel. Gospel is news, right? Good news is news words. These are propositions, friends. They are the revealed propositions. These are the words. These are truths that have been communicated to us, and we believe these promises. We believe these truths. We believe this news. It is thought content, and if you think that thought content and think that it's true, you have received Christ. And you can't do that on your own. You are darkness in yourself. If you, of your own power, respond to the gospel coming to you, guess what you're going to do? No way, Jesus. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. I'd have to give up what I like. And so, that's the natural response. Guess the only way you're going to think it's true is if the Holy Spirit causes you to. And this is the stumbling stone. The gospel. Christ. The ease of it. Easy believism. It's not even easy believism. It's somebody else did it for me believism. Yes, easy believism. But you know what? Here's the thing. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it at all. It is totally impossible for you to believe the gospel. And the only reason you believe the gospel if you do is because of a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to rise from the dead. To believe it is true. To think these thoughts and that they are the word of God. And that Christ did it all. His righteousness is your righteousness. He is who he said. And you are what he told you you are from the law. You're guilty. And you're unable to do it yourself. Those are propositions. That's propositional content. And if you think it's true, you're saved. You've received Christ. You've believed. Anything else is another gospel. I'd encourage you to look at chat page 12 about effectual calling to study that for yourselves. There's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to believe. The word objectively is given and the Holy Spirit causes you to believe. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This is the legal position of sonship. You are sons. You are heirs. Because of that relationship to Christ, it's a legal relationship. Law and truth. And so then verse 13 is the effectual calling verse. Those who believed are those who were born. Born in what way? Were they born of blood? Is it just by a blood relationship? No. Nor of the will of the flesh. It's not your natural will, your natural ability that caused you to be born again. You didn't birth yourself again. It's not the will of man, just in case you didn't get the will of the flesh, right? It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the natural man's ability. And just to be clear, it's nothing in man. It's not of man. It's of God. You were born of God. Born from God. Born by the power of God. That's the new birth. So that's what we're given there. We are made adopted sons because of a supernatural birthing into the household of God. Now, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.